Yep, it's always crazy when you have a bunch of women. 190 women. Ooh. Yes. That's our biggest retreat to date. And I just want to say thank you to those that um, prayed for this retreat, that gave financial support so that more women could come. You were truly a blessing, and we just appreciate each one of you. If you missed it, you saw what you were missing, and we missed you. Honestly, we did, um, but we had a great time. Um, we have a special treat this morning. Um, Michelle Pilar was, of course, with us all weekend. She's an author, a speaker, a singer, a three-time Grammy nominee and Dove nominee. I think it, um, I heard that you have sold, in the, when you were touring and everything, you sold over five million records. That's a lot of vinyl. It is. It is. And records, you, is that those things that go round and round? I don't know. That was before my time. Oh, I see. But I heard you were involved in one or two what? or three. They're at garage sales now for yeah. 50 cents. <laughs> okay, back to your True. Script. That's true. Here's your scripts. Oh. Right. <laughs> Please. Michelle also toured with Billy Graham. So we are so glad that she's with us. You are going to get to hear some of her life stories and, and how, she, how God truly redeemed her in a story of a redemptive power. So Michelle, please, please, Bethesda, give her a Texas welcome. Shall we have a seat? You go to the middle. You wanna be on the end? Yeah, because then I won't be like a tennis match. Which end would you I like? I don't care. Then sit right here. Okay. I want to be able to look at both. I don't want to be in the middle. Well, you're the prettiest. <laughs> ladies, we'll put, we'll ladies, the, please. I know. <laughs> I know. We're, I know. <laughs> Becky and I are, are already redesigning the stage. I, you be in the middle. It doesn't no, matter. No, no, no. For crying out no, loud, sit you down. Decide. Pastor, sit down. down. Take control. Ooh, this is a fun chair. I can't reach the floor. We rehearsed this part. Are you going? You're going down? You're going to be in <laughs> That's fun. Okay. You, she's sinking. See, if it goes the wrong way, she's in trouble. Do we, we have an anchor in the... Let's just stand. Okay. No. We could stand. Okay. No, I'm I, scared. I can barely reach the floor. You'll never reach the floor. Okay. <laughs> Who's I... Whose idea was yeah, this? Yeah, whose idea was this? Oh, no. The, the, wheel, uh, okay. the wheels are coming off the car. Do you car. need a bigger chair? No, I'm oh. fine. <laughs> Stick to your script, please. <laughs> oh. All right, now that we have that behind us, <laughs> Michelle asked that. I just want to be closer yeah. to you. <laughs> right. Michelle asked uh, that we have a question and answer time. And those of you ladies who were at the um, retreat certainly know that that's, she's very transparent. She's very open. Becky and I both read her book, and she has copies of it available. We're going to talk about it because we have some questions to ask her about it. But before we do that. Yes, sir. Tell us, because these questions and, uh, that come from your book will only make sense if we know a little bit about you. 
Okay. Give I us just sense. a tiny synopsis about you so that our questions about your no, book No, it make makes sense. total sense because if, if you don't remember who I am from the 80s, that's okay because I don't remember who I am from the 80s. Um, I was raised in Southern California in Orange County by a single mother. and we, There were four girls in our family, and I was the youngest of four. Um, my dad was pretty much abs absentee, wonderful man, loving man, just didn't, didn't quite have the equipment to be, you know, to really, f to be a, f a father to four girls and a, and a husband and all that stuff. So um, Jesus was not in our home. Um, and I became a Christian at the age of 17, three weeks before I graduated from high school in the Jesus movement. I attended Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith. So the first time I ever sang, in fact, Harlan Rogers is here tonight, uh, today. Harlan, my dear friend Harlan, if you, oh, there you are, Harlan. You all know Harlan, right? Mm -hmm. um, I sang for Harlan on the Hosanna album and all the praise albums. You know, I sang, Jesus, what a wonder you are. I was there too, probably. You are, you are, you are so, so gentle, so pure and so kind. You shine like the morning star. <laughs> You get it. Yeah. Um, in moments like these, oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. sing out a song. That. So I think I was about 19 or 20 when I sang those songs. I was four. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when Jesus came into my life, it, it truly was revolutionary. Coming from the home life that I did, my mom was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. All three of my sisters were alcoholics. Um, you know, when you don't have Jesus, you better be drinking. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, should I? No. <laughs> Don't forget, we're live streaming across the world. Oh, oh dear, we're live yes. streaming across the world. Yes. Okay, well, live stream, just forget what I said. You know what I was saying? People who, let me rephrase that. People who don't know the living God and have him living in their lives, they do sundry things to deaden the pain. And our home life and our family root system really was that they chose alcohol to deaden the pain. And when you do that, you have mass confusion and more hurt. So when Jesus Christ came into my heart and I could feel the love of God and I could feel that I wasn't alone and I could feel that I wasn't lost um, in this world, it revolutionized me in every way, shape, and form. And I loved him with all of my heart. But as you read in Untangled, I was still very broken because I was saved and I was redeemed by the blood of the lamb, but I was broken, broken, broken and didn't quite get the memo on that, that I, it was going to take time and effort and working out my salvation, as the word put, puts it, to untangle so much. So that's kind of how I started. I was catapulted into the public eye, catapulted into these you know, records that, that were going all over the place in the Jesus movement days and Christian radio was just um, being birthed into this massive, very effective thing. And I was part of that, but there was a lot going on in the background that even I didn't understand. Um, her book is called Untangled, The Truth Will Set You Free. I'm gonna scoot back, Becky, because I can't see you. Um, I get the sense from, from your book, and we talked, you and I talked this morning about, you wrote it, Yes, there were editors that were involved in tweaking a little bit, but I could tell, I felt like I knew you after reading your book. One thing that's very, very clear is that 
wherever you are in your journey today, you have come to a place where you are willing to be very transparent and very open and that no question is off limits. That's what I told you on the phone, didn't I? Yeah. You may regret that in a few okay. minutes. Why is it that you're willing to be so transparent about it? The reason why I'm willing to be transparent about it is because God twisted my arm around the back of me, and for two years, he wouldn't let that go. I was pretty much not in ministry anymore. I was living on a little farm in Tennessee, minding my own business. I finally learned to be okay with quiet. I learned to be okay with the peace and the stillness of God without a lot going on. That's a wonderful thing to discover, by the way. Um, and then the Lord kind of woke me up from a nap, is how I put it. It's like waking up from a nap. And he said, Michelle, you're not done yet. And I said, okay. And he's, all he said was, I want you to tell the truth. I want you to tell the truth. And so I prayed about that for two years. Because I thought it was maybe my idea. You know how you think something's your idea? If God ever puts a fire in your belly and it won't go out, it's not your idea, it's his, more than likely. Especially if you don't want to do it, it's most certainly probably his idea. <laughs> so anyway, he just kept saying, tell the truth, tell the truth. And I just, I don't know if you try to argue with God ever, but I do all the time, especially when I don't understand. And he always knows me well enough that I have to understand at least a little bit. And so finally... You know, I kept telling him all the reasons why that didn't make any sense. Nobody remembers who I am. Um, I'm not Jackie Onassis. Why do I have to write my story? I mean, I had all these arguments. And finally, when I got really quiet, the Lord said this so clearly, and I knew it was the Lord because I wasn't smart enough to think it up. But he said, Michelle, if you will tell the unvarnished truth about what I've done for you, not just the victories, because we love to talk about the victories, but we don't really like to talk about where we started at the bottom of the barrel and then how the Lord truly brought us to victory in a given situation. He said, if you will describe that and, and write that cinematically it, down onto paper, he said, I will use your story to get into the story of the reader in places I can't go. That was riveting. And that was a good enough reason for me to tell the truth. So I had to rewrite re re the book three times. I wrote it once, and it was a nice, sweet Christian book. And the Lord just said, uh-uh. So I wrote it again, and it was better. And then I wrote it the third time, and I just took every shield off, every protection. And I'd be, t I'd be typing at my computer, and I'd say, how am I going to say that? How am I going to say that? And the Lord would always, his answer was always the same, just tell the truth. And so I did, and I said, are you going to protect me? Are you going to be with me? And he said, yes, because this book isn't about you, Michelle. He said, it's about me. And what's great are those are the two comments I get more than any other comments as people read the book, is they'll say either, you know, I was reading your book, and all of a sudden I forgot I was reading about you, and then I remembered about something that I long buried, and God's now dealing with me. So, see, I started seeing how God was fulfilling what he promised, that he was getting into the stories of the people that were reading it in places he couldn't go. And the other thing that I've heard, this is so crazy, is I've heard people say, you know, it was such an honest book that I couldn't see you, Michelle. All I could see was God. Isn't that beautiful? So when we become that transparent, thinking we're really revealing everything about us, 
we're really revealing everything about God. I just love that. That's wonderful. Toward the end of the first chapter, which is called You Can't Frighten the Dead, you make an incredible statement that I would like to ask you to unpack a little bit for us this morning. Here's what you say. By the way, she doesn't know what we're going to ask her. I'm not sure what I'm going to ask her either, do you? Here's what you say. The security of my relationship with him rests in his promises, but the depth of my relationship rests with me. Can you talk about that? The security rests with his promises, but the depth of the relationship rests with us. You know, you can come to know Jesus and never go very deep with him. And he will write your name in his book of life. And you can stay right there at that moment of salvation and never move if you choose to. But it's been my experience, and sadly, to my chagrin, you know, that when I put on a Christian persona and I just kind of rock along, that I leave God behind, I, I just, I don't trust him enough to be really intimate with him when I do that. And true trust means that we do stay transparent. And when something hurts, you know, we realize it isn't healed yet. And then we come to him and we say, Father, it hurts. This hurts. This person said this or did this or I did this or I did that. And then what I've learned is that the word of God, the word of God is the only thing by the power of the Holy Spirit that changes that hurt. So instead of just walking around in that hurt or walking around pretending or walking around with me trying to control it or fix it or mask it or whatever I tend to do humanly, instead, if I will really spend that time and come to him and then search his word for the counterpart to the pain I'm feeling, and then I ask him by the power of his living word, because he is the word, John 1, 1, the word was with God and the word was God. It is a miracle that we have that book to open up every day. It's a miracle. He didn't just become a man and die for us, but he scribed himself into every tissue paper page in that book. And so when I will drink that in, and then we fall deeper in love, and I find out more about who he is, and, and, and that depth is, I am responsible for that depth. He can't, he can't shove it down my throat, and he won't. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the book, and actually you just told us some of this about your past, um, and at the retreat yesterday you talked about it, but um, you told us about your father that had abandoned you. Um, your mother was an alcoholic, was abusive. Your sisters really weren't there for you. They left. And um, I didn't get the true sense that you ever played the blame game or that you were like a victim. And so many times we want to blame our past, the way we were raised, for things that we couldn't do or, you know, that why we got into trouble, why, why things happened. Can you tell me how you overcame that? You know, I think I would like to tell you some wonderful answer, Becky, that I, you know, I was just so good and all that that I didn't blame. But honestly, it was, it was just the opposite. I tried so hard to be such a good girl. Being the youngest of four, you tend to want to just make it right for everyone. So it would have never dawned on me to blame anybody. I was too small. I had such little power in that family that blaming would have felt too powerful to me. 
Hmm. Does that make sense? So instead, I tried to be perfect. And trying to be perfect will kill you. It will kill you. More than any bottle of alcohol, drug, the perfectionism in me had to die. I couldn't be Jesus for everybody in that family. So it took time, but that took decades. Were you, trying, were you in any way trying to be the enabler? Uh. For the, for the oh, family. yeah. I made excuses for everybody. I, I hid secrets for everybody. We had a lot of secrets. I talked about that at the clothesline yesterday. Um, in fact, I hung all the secrets up on the clothesline, mm. and we talked about those. But, um, yeah, I mean, when everything's off, as a kid, you just try to do everything you can to make it back to plumb. And, and again, Jesus is, is the only thing that can make us plumb, but it took me a very long time mm. to... Um, you, you just mentioned about the value of the, of the Word of God and how you dove into it. Um, in that same first chapter, you say, I devoured the Bible with eyes that didn't shy away from the hard truths it wanted to teach me. I want to know, was it your life challenges that drove you back to the Word of the Lord, and did you do that willingly, or did you really feel, was there something compelling about that brought you back to the, to the Word of the Lord? Did that come naturally? for you to do that, because I'm not sure everybody, when they hit their life challenges, naturally uh, go to the word of the Lord. Some people do. Um, and then also, when you talk, you, you, I noticed that you said they were hard truths. Are you willing to tell us this morning, what was one or two of the hardest truths you had to learn from the word? First of all, um, was it natural for me to go to the word of God? No, I had to lose a lot. I had to, and keep losing. And, and I'm... Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I've, I've been married not just a couple of times, okay? I mean, I've been horrible at marriage. And um, because, well, for a whole bunch, I won't even go there. <laughs> but that's embarrassing, to be honest, you know? It's embarrassing. But when you keep picking the same thing, making the same choices, no matter how much you love the Lord, but you keep picking the same stuff, and it keeps not working, and you're like, Lord, I love you, and I keep getting embarrassed, and I keep embarrassing you. That's how I felt. So I had to lose a lot before I kind of just sat there one day with nothing again and thought, okay, I love the Lord. He lives in my life. Why are my roots so weak that any wind of change or, or the scheme of the enemy comes along? I don't see it coming. And that's when I, I, all I could, I'd been taught well in church, but somehow I needed to find it for myself in the Word of God alone with the Lord. And once I figured that out, I became hungry, so hungry for God's truth. Um, so, no, it didn't come natural, but it came from all the loss. This is not a question, but you saying that reminds me, we live in such a world, particularly here in the Bible Belt, of what I call Christian culturalism. Sure. And there's a culture to church, there's a culture to our environment that's our Christian culture. And it's always, um, it always seems like that it, it must become an individual, not 
must be. I mean, it's an individual decision. Sometimes a young person will grow up and, and they're really in the church because their mother or father made them or their grandparents brought them. And you, it is always a joy to see them come to that point of ownership of their faith. It's theirs. It's not because mama told me to. It's not because daddy made me. It's not because of my grandparents. They, bring, they, have, they take ownership of their own faith. And once they do that, they rise above just becoming a cultural Christian. Okay, I'm sorry, these questions no, are for you. That's no, that's, that's fantastic, it's true. Okay, again in that same chapter you say, my flaws don't change who he is. What do you mean by that? And what is it that you would like to communicate this morning to people who are wrestling with their own flaws? Well, the first thing I'd like to share, if I may, is when, um, that my flaws don't change who he is. I don't know why, but as a, as a Christian for many years and even decades, I felt like it was my responsibility to somehow protect his impeccable reputation. Hmm. That I needed, and we do want to glorify the Lord with the way we walk and talk and act and look. But if it's really not real, real, it's just something I feel almost like is my job to do, then I have all these hidden, again, these hidden things that really haven't been dealt with or redeemed or healed. I almost felt like I didn't want to embarrass the Lord's reputation by having a flaw. And, you know, the world doesn't see Jesus in us because we don't have flaws. The world sees Jesus in us because we are so filled with flaw. And we're, you know, that, that we're not afraid to show that. I don't, I don't know where, I don't know, I got that kind of backward. Do you know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's hard to show who we really are, but people don't come to know the Lord because of any other reason but that they see how badly and how desperately we need him and how much we, um, are, you know, our righteousness is as filthy rags. But it's really hard after you come to know the Lord not to just, you know, every time someone says, how are you, you say, fine, praise the Lord. Well, we're not all fine. We're all really broken. And we're getting more unbroken every day with the Lord. But does that all make sense? But you were a Christian artist in the 80s. Yep. Wasn't there a certain stereotypical image that went along with that? That's a good point, um, Pastor Dan, that yes, in, in the 80s, now it's really, you know, kind of in vogue to talk about stuff and go to Christian counseling, and that's all good. Um, but yeah, in the 80s, we weren't supposed to have any flaws. Perfection, yeah, perfection was sort of required because it you was. were up on the stage and in yeah. front of everybody. I forgot about that. Yeah. I forgot about that. And um, I would always get in trouble with my record label. Um, well, not always, but often. I was always on the edge, which is so funny, because if you listen to those songs now, they, they weren't edgy compared to anything now. But I always wanted to tell a little bit more of the truth. And sometimes the record company president would call me in and say, you can't sing that song. And um, one song was called More Than Just a Man was on my very first solo record, and, and it talked about the, all the people I had loved that had let me down, and, and that Jesus was more than a man, and that I could count on him and depend on him. And, and he said, you can't humanize Jesus like that. You can't be comparing Jesus to the bad boyfriends you've had, you know? And, and he didn't want me to sing the song. But so did you? I did. <laughs> 
And it, and it did real well at radio, but I'd already been singing it live for f a few years, and I knew how it was resonating with people right where they were. And, you know, it is true that we, we try to find fulfillment and love in places we shouldn't. So, yeah, I was always a little bit of, of a troublemaker because even back then, I was a little more transparent than everyone was comfortable with. Hmm. Next. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> Becky and I had a little time together at the conference together just shortly because I knew that, that she would be Can we quiet. talk about chapter four? Sure. Chapter four. No. That's what she was going <laughs> to... Hang on to that girl. Okay, you want to talk about chapter four? You okay. will, are you willing to oh, talk yeah, about I'm chapter four? Oh, yeah, I'm willing to talk about chapter four. Do you four? remember chapter four? <laughs> I remember chapter four. It is a profoundly transparent chapter where you speak of untangling the shame. Yes. Okay. And you give a degree of detail about the circumstances surrounding an incident that you had in 1973. Okay. What can you say carefully to a young lady or middle-aged lady who continues to struggle today who might have made a similar decision to a decision you made in 1973? You worded that very well. I thought it was really good. I was proud of it. <laughs> I worked hard on it. You said a whole bunch of nothing right uh -huh. there. It's my specialty. Some people say I do that every Sunday morning from the pulpit. <laughs> Chapter four is called Found. And um, the Lord snuck up on me. Uh, in healing a portion of my life. You know, some of our secrets are so buried that he has to put us to sleep to unearth them. He has to anesthetize us to get to them. And he did that with me um, because uh, in 1973, three weeks before I became a Christian, I was, remember, I was the good little girl trying to be Jesus for everyone, good grades, all that good stuff. And... Um, I started dating a man that was eight years my senior. And it took me a whopping 30 days to wind up pregnant. And for the little perfectionist, this was devastating. And of course, any young girl who finds herself, or young man who finds himself with a young girl, in that position, it's, it's daunting, it's frightening, it's shameful. Um, in, it's in every way, it just rocks your world. You know, life unexpected is never unexpected to God, but it's unexpected for most of us or we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, most of us are the product of life unexpected. But in that context, um, I went to the gentleman who was the father, and, of course, he slammed the door in my face. I think I still have the bruise on the end of my nose. And um, I didn't want to go to my mom because my mom had enough troubles, right? So I found myself at the county abortion clinic. And a woman walked in through the door, I can still remember it, and in this dank, dark hallway I was sitting in. And she had this huge smile on her face. And she said, we have such good news for you. There's a brand new law that's just been passed. It's only 90 days old. It's called Roe versus Wade. And now you have choices. And so I was listening with both ears. I thought, okay, choices would be good. And then she didn't, she didn't really give me any choices. 
She just basically told me what my rights were and that I didn't have to tell the guy. And I said, well, too late. Um, and she said, you don't have to tell your mom, even though you're a minor. And I said, I was relieved. And, um, and she, the third thing she said to me, though, was the biggest lie of all. And she said, you will be okay. You'll be, you'll be fine after this. And you can go on with your life. And there was nothing about that experience that was fine. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, anything. And uh, it wasn't until later when I was in my 40s that my mother and I finally talked about it and cried together. And she said, you know, Michelle, had Roe versus Wade been in effect when, in 55, when I became pregnant with you... You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. She said, the last thing I needed was another child. And she said, I'm so thankful I didn't have that choice. So what do you say to a lady today who, whether it's known or if she bears it within the confines and the quiet of her own heart, has done that which is, and you've experienced it and lived it, and you know what the pain is. What do you say to that lady today? Well, first of all, I'd like to tell her about the dream that I had, because that's how God began to heal me from the travesty and the pillage of my abortion. Um, I buried it. You know, when you have a secret like that and you bury it, um, the enemy uses it at the most opportune times to accuse you and point his finger at you. And when the enemy would, would use that against me is when I'd be stepping foot on the Billy Graham crusade. Sure. And I'd be in front of 40,000 people. Mm -hmm. And I'd literally step my foot on the platform and the enemy would say, well, mm -hmm. if they only knew, right? right? So that's the kind of stuff that happens when we bury that stuff. But when we want to feel strong, it's, it's when he tries to use it to make us feel weak. So here I was, and I was in my early 50s, I believe, and I had set up a writing appointment with my dear friend, B.B. Winans. I've known B.B. since he was a background singer for Tammy Faye Baker. Mm. That was a long time ago. And we were slated to write together, and I prayed before I went to sleep. And I said, Lord, what do you want us to write about tomorrow? I don't have anybody to answer to but you. And I had a dream. And that's when the Lord snuck up on me. And he carried me to heaven in that dream. And I got to see all of these children and toddlers all the way up to age 9 or 10. And they were all in this beautiful field playing and singing and dancing. I, I didn't know where I was, but I did know where I was. And I didn't know who they were, but these children couldn't see me. I could only see them. And then this little toddler caught my eye and, and walked up to me. And when I touched his hand... I knew exactly who he was. He was mine. And that, yes, and that baby, without speaking one word to me, he said, it's okay. And then he went to play with the other kids, and I woke up. And I was crying, and, and, and the Lord said, that's what I want you to write about. And he said, that child is okay. I would tell her, the minute that baby left your body, the Lord made that baby whole. And now it's time for you to be, us to be whole. And, you know, we beat ourselves up enough about it. We don't need, go ahead, what are you going to ask? No, I'm not. You were, I'm, you're no, going to say listening. something. So I went to the writing session with, you know, looking like I'd been in a nine-round boxing match. And B.B. said, okay. Um, and I told, B.B. Winans was the first person I told. And I said, but we can't write a song about this. This is crazy. I mean, how are we going to, now I'm like shoving it under the rug again. And I'll never forget it. B.B. said, you had a dream. We have to try. And we, uh, we wrote a song called Found. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, your turn. Ask her that one. I'm going to ask it. Did you really spend much of your life? I know you were in beauty pageants. You won Miss something in Southern California <laughs> and whatever, which plays into um, what you say your story is. But yet, you write in your book that you spent much of your life feeling that you were a mistake because of what your mom said to you. Did the accolades that you then received as a Christian artist, I, you know, I was around during that time watching the Christian music uh, industry from afar and admiring all of you who were uh, in the forefront and being nominated for all of the awards and all of that stuff. All those accolades that you received as, as a successful Christian artist, none of that served to quell the thoughts or to, to calm the thoughts of that you were a mistake. No, because the accuser never stops doing his job. He doesn't. And the only thing that keeps you from the fiery darts of, of whatever he has to say to break you down and make you feel worthless like a mistake and like you weren't supposed to be born um, to begin with um, is, is the, the armor of God and the love of God and his, the fact that you're priceless to him. The pricelessness in Jesus is the only thing that makes me feel like I'm worth a dime. I can't sing my way out of this. I can't write my way out of it. I can't get in. There aren't enough awards on the planet to fill the insatiable voids that we have from living in the battle we are in. So if we're trying to find it with money or jobs or position or, you know, what, it, it's, it's, it's just wood, hay, and stubble. Well, and don't you, and you may have done this with the ladies this weekend, don't you often, you were telling me this morning how you often approach a congregation to say, how many of them know who you are? <laughs> tell, tell them that. I, I love to do that. My husband, Matt, gets up and you know, introduces me somewhat the way you both have done. And, you know, you see everybody in the audience like, she's who, you know? And then I, the first thing I ask is, how many of you honestly raise your hand? You have no idea who I am. And, you know, 90% of the crowd raises their hand. And I love that because it makes me realize everything we do is so fragile. It's so temporal. Yeah. It's so five minutes ago, you know, and we cannot rest our worth on that stuff. And, and all the more so as, as, as we get closer to the coming of the Lord and as, this, as the culture changes, everything is evolves so quickly. And yet young people put so much stock in you know, in becoming the next YouTube sensation oh, yeah. or the next whatever, and it is so fleeting. I call it fast food fame. Okay. I kind of call it fast food fame, and it breaks my heart. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so at the conference yesterday, when we ended, you talked about Abba Father and how that was so, the meaning, and how, it over, how Abba Father overcame some of the things. Can you dwell on that a little bit? I'd, l I'd love to. Um, part of my journey as I went through learning how to forgive my mom, and that was a whole process that the Lord showed me how to do. And by the way, forgiveness is a miracle. I always hear it's a choice. It starts as a choice, but it ends as a miracle. Because if I just try to choose to do it, I'm going to be mad the next day all over again. But if God 
If he wrots the miracle of forgiveness, he did it first, he did it best, and he lives inside of us. So when I need to really forgive somebody or something or even myself, I have to pray for the miracle of forgiveness. I have to get down on my face and beg for the miracle of forgiveness because Jesus didn't make it an option. He said, as you have been forgiven, you must forgive. So it's not like it's optional. But what I love, it's not just what is going to happen between you and the Lord when you forgive, but it's what God is going to do through you after you forgive. Because it was only after I forgave my mom that my mom came to know the Lord with me. Oh, my sitting with her eating a turkey sandwich at my kitchen table. She couldn't hear the gospel. I was on the cover of Christian magazines and stuff. She wasn't the least bit interested in the Jesus I was singing about. But I got to tell you, something wonderful happened after I forgave her. And by the way, I didn't have to tell her that I forgave her. In fact, it would have been inappropriate for me to tell her I had forgiven her. But it, between the Lord and I, it changed everything that came out of my mouth. It changed everything that happened between she and I. And then when I started talking about Jesus, she became very hungry for it. And so we prayed together for her to know the Lord. I love that point. You didn't have to tell her. It's always such a blessing when people come to you and say, Pastor Dan, I want you to know, I thought you were such a jerk for so long, but the Lord has really helped me to forgive you. And I go, what a blessing that is to me today. It just comforts me and edifies me. So I'm so glad you told me that. Go, my brother, like quickly, right out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. We could be brutal. We could be brutal to one another. I mean, guys, come on. Um, but anyway, about Abba. Part of the journey after the forgiveness toward my mom, and this this process went for years, and it's a lot of what we do at the Clothesline Conference is really the process that God took me through. Isn't that right, Becky? And it's kind of put up on a stage for a day and a half. And I just teach what, how God taught me, and that's what makes it so wonderful, because I know it'll work for them, because it worked for me. But anyway, Abba, that was one of the last light bulb moments, um, and I hope I continue to have them forever. But for decades in my walk with the Lord, I feel like I loved two-thirds of the Godhead. Hmm. So I could relate to Jesus all day long. I loved the Holy Spirit and could feel the chill bumps and the guidance, the counsel, the, the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But when, if you were to come up to me and honestly ask me at any given point, who is God the Father to you? I pictured a dark room with an empty throne. Because how could I possibly know the Father when I didn't have one? And so at a given point in my journey with the Lord, um, and especially in writing the book, it, you can't you had to promise me you won't fast forward, but the last chapter of the book, I was saying, Lord, where haven't we gone yet? I knew there was one more chapter, and I felt the broken heart of Abba. As I prayed about it and prayed about that last chapter, it's like he was saying, please tell them about me. Please tell them about me. Because Jesus came that we might know the Father. If you've seen, <laughs> he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why do we need to know the Father? Well, I'm going to stand up for this. We need to know the Father because if we don't know who we are to the Father, we won't know who we are as people. And we won't know how to feel protected. We won't know how to say no and, you know, put a line in the sand and set a boundary and say, nope, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to take a day off. Or, I need to... See, Abba is, I think, the father part of God is our covering and our protection and our... It's the most secure place you can ever be is with Abba. 
And so the last garment we hang on the line is a man's shirt. And I wrap the arms around me. I said, I'd like to introduce you to someone you may not know. His name is Abba. And, and, you know, Jesus could have died for us as a child. Of course, it wouldn't have been fulfilled prophecy, and that would have been horrible. But do you know what I'm saying? He could have died at any point. His blood would have counted. Why did he live 30-plus years? Because he wanted us to see the Father. So everything Jesus ever said, everything Jesus ever did for someone, the Father's heart is manifested in all those things that he is. And so now, I, cannot, I can't quite put this into words, but when I adopted and fell in love with the, I became comfortable in the throne room with Abba, it changed me more than anything has ever changed me in my walk with God. Yeah. Wonderful. So <clears throat> well, the book is called Untangled, The Truth Will, Will Set You Free, and she'll be out um, at uh, the tables right after the service. F final question, and are you gonna sing for us? Yeah. Good. Um, Final question is, what is your life's treasure? <laughs> he, wanted to, he asked me this morning, Pastor Dan, do you remember what your life's treasure is? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. I think you were testing me to see if I really wrote the book. I didn't want to throw you here in the question I and know. answer time. <laughs> it would be really embarrassing if you didn't know what you wrote in your book. <laughs> my, life's, <laughs> my life's treasure is a soft and pliable heart. Because it's tough to live in this world, and at any given time, we can feel it start to crust over. You know what I'm talking about. You start to feel lifeless, and you just can't remember where that tender heart went. You're kind of going through the motions. And, and of everything I've ever been through in losing things and blunders and all of it, what the Lord showed me at a given point is he whispered this into my heart. He said, Michelle... All of that, all of those mistakes and all of those missteps were child's play compared to what the enemy was really after. Mm. And what he was really after was your soft heart and your childlike faith. Because once we lose that, we've lost everything. Everything. And so I always say my life's lesson is letting go. It's letting go. It's the last thing we'll ever do here on earth, isn't that right, is we'll let go. Yeah. And, we'll, and he'll just catch us up. And my life's treasure is a soft and pliable heart. That's so wonderful. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your willingness to share with us. Um, and as I've told you, this is a wonderful group of people, and uh, I know that they've been receptive to hear your openness and your transparency, and uh, in as much as you've done it into the least of us, you've done it unto him. So we bless you. So sing for us. Okay. 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 Thank you. This is a song that um, was written by some dear friends of mine, Alan Shamblin and Mike Reed, great writers in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, Alan Shamblin was kind enough to read Untangled before it was a book. And I asked him to please read it and tell me if I should stoke my fire with it. And he said, no, I, th I think you should definitely <laughs> go ahead and get, try to get this thing published. He said, in fact, I'd love to try to write a song that goes with your book. And they did a beautiful job of putting the whole book into a three-minute song. It's called You Untangle Me.
to outrun the pain It's like dancing between drops of rain And when the shame to which I am bound Grows like a vine around my feet Without mercy, no release You untangle me From the trouble in my mind From the wounds and fears that bind me To the messes left behind me In my wandering You untangle me In my struggle to be free When despair and memory like old chains that I can't see Have all but strangled me Well, you untangle me You are my water, you're my wine You are my eyes when I go and when a voice of doubt is all I hear And I'm losing faith, I'm losing nerve Convinced you're more than I deserve You untangle me From the trouble in my mind From the wounds and fears that bind me To the messes left behind me In my wandering you When despair and memory, like old chains that I can't see, have all but strangled me. Oh, you untangle me. When my heart is slow to as if it never will In the deepest pain I feel You go deeper still Deeper still To untangle me From the trouble in my mind From the wounds and fears that bind me To the messes left behind me In my wandering you. Thank you.
Bless you all. It's been an honor to be with you. You have a beautiful church.